0: Open with me to the book of First Timothy. Would I be out of line to ask for water? I'm drying out down here in the prairie and I don't want to drink out of that one. I see some see some stuff missing. All right, First Timothy. I'm happy to say I didn't get asked to preach an hour ago at the fellowship meal. I had a little more time. I have had that happen. I'm just thankful it did not happen tonight. All right, did I say First Timothy? First Timothy chapter three. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. We're just going to read three verses, and then we will pray. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. These things write I unto thee. This is Paul writing to Timothy, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text we have just read. Lord, we know that all of this is profitable. But you've ordained that we take parts of it and expound those. We pray that you'd be with us tonight to comfort where it's needed, to encourage where it's needed, to correct, to rebuke, to convict, to convince where it's needed. We thank you, Lord, that even in this late hour, we have the word of God in our hands. Help us to be subject to that word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right, I'm going to announce my topic right off the bat. I don't always do that, but I'll do it tonight. Here's where we're going tonight. It's a question. Are your expectations for your pastor? I guess I could say pastors. I mean, your pastor, any pastors the Lord adds to this church. You see a plurality often in the New Testament. Any future pastors you may be under, are your expectations for pastors based upon what the Bible actually says or on something else? I want to start with just a few personal comments. I think they may be helpful. Most of what I'm preaching tonight, very candidly, has been things that I have been consumed with over the past year. I've spent a great deal of time in what we call the pastoral epistles, and it's been a time of much challenge, much strengthening, and much correcting in my own life through biblical preaching and through the Word of God that I've spent time in on my own. Uh, Most of you know I was a pastor in Montana for many years. I was your pastor's pastor. I was blessed to lead in his ordination. But the Lord has transplanted us clear across the country. We're now part of Midcoast Baptist Church up in Brunswick, Maine. And we have three pastors. And right this minute, I'm not one of them. Now I expect that door to open in the future, there or elsewhere, as the Lord leads through his church But I'm content to be in charge when the Lord puts me there. I'm content to not be in charge when the Lord puts me not in charge. Uh, It's his church. He's the Lord of it. The only permanent position is Jesus Christ, the head. But my point in saying that is this. What I'm saying tonight, I'm able to say to you as a fellow church member who right this minute is under pastoral authority. But second, I'll tell you up front, I'm dealing with some weighty things tonight. And I'm going to make some specific applications. Do you know why that is? That's what Bible preaching does. As America drifts more and more into apostasy, people want pastors who are merely suggestion factories or men who just teach and stay out of the people's lives Bible preaching takes Bible doctrine and brings it right down into your life and makes application and challenges you to change into the image of Christ. Now, I don't know any of you, and I'm not a mind reader, but I've been preaching long enough to know this. A lot of what I'm covering tonight is often raises hackles of people for one reason or another. Now, that's not my goal. But if you're tempted to get angry at some of this, let me challenge you up front. Remember the most important person in this room. Not me, not him. I don't see him, neither do you. But I can read Revelation 1, and I know he's here. The hair of his head is white like wool. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like fine brass burned in a furnace. And his voice is like the sound of many waters. And there he is pictured walking among his churches. This is his church. So let me encourage you up front. Have a heart before him. Have a mindset that says, I will be submissive to what the scriptures say. If you are in error in some of these things, I am thrilled to tell you what we are going over quickly tonight can be used of the Lord to save you from tremendous spiritual ruin. Look at these things as the good hand of God on you as his child. That's why these things are said. I mean, how many of you are growing in your role as husband? Any of you wives growing? Any of you parents growing? We ought to be growing in our understanding of what pastors are expected to be by us and how we respond to that now it may seem strange to you that i ask the question do you base your expectations on what the bible actually says or something else why do i say that here's why you probably know almost any professing christian in this deeply confused time of ours, if you said do you want a biblical pastor they're going to say oh yeah absolutely Joel Osteen's followers down at the Compact Center would say that. It doesn't mean a lot. But if you have conversations with people about that very topic, here's what you will find. Many people have expectations of pastors that are not based on Scripture, but a whole lot of other things. Let me give you some examples. You may be sitting here and unwittingly, Facing your expectations for your pastor on a reaction to a bad experience you had in the past. Maybe you were under a pastor who was wrongfully dictatorial, not approachable, pompous, arrogant, a rooster strutting around the platform that really couldn't help you spiritually because he really wasn't submitted to the Lord. And now you're running for Far away from that. Maybe you've been under pastors that have done heinous things. They've failed morally. They've shocked you. They've hurt you. I sympathize because I know something about both of those by experience of what I've been under. But you cannot base your expectations of this pastor or other pastors based on running from something else. Many would base their expectations for a pastor on emotion. The pastor preached a sermon and I felt good. I agreed. It was, he was, he's a good pastor. I left church feeling miserable. What a bad pastor. I brought visitors, they liked the sermon. What a good pastor. I brought visitors they left angry. What a bad pastor. Emotion. It's a poor standard. Some do it based on comparisons. Well, that's not what so-and-so does. You know, that radio preacher I heard, or that college president over yonder, that megachurch, that guru, well, they don't do it like that. Some base expectations of pastors on numerical excess, success. If there's more bodies and more chairs over time, he's doing good. If there's less bodies and less chairs over time, he's doing bad it's a terrible metric we all want growth real growth amen but do i i need to remind you that the lord jesus christ at one point in his ministry on purpose whittled his crowd down from thousands down to a dozen and he turned to that dozen without an inkling of fear or timidity in his voice and he said will ye also go away Biblical preaching, one of the things it will do, it will will down sometimes to real disciples who want truth. And that's far better than masses who do not. Some base their expectations on popular culture. Here's what my neighbor wants in a pastor. Or if a lost person comes, I sure hope my pastor makes sure that they know he's just like them. He's he's cool and he's relevant and he's positive only. Or sometimes it's just plain worldliness that they base their expectations on. If you took the spirit of the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, and you boiled it into one word, what would it be? I may not be entirely correct on this, but I would say it's this, rebellion. It's my own way. Any of you noticed authority figures are not very popular in our culture these days? I think it's funny every time I pass by one of these now hiring signs, and nobody can hire employees anymore. They have to be team members. There has to be all this language to make people never think they actually have to do what they're told. That's bad for their psyche. Religious rebellion can talk and sing about Jesus with great emotion. It can wave its arms and shed tears and come to church meetings, but at its core, when it's really pressed, it wants its own way, and it cannot tolerate a preacher that insists on God's way in everything. They've invented their own Jesus, the effeminate lisping party animal. They've invented their own genres of music and slapped the name Christian on it. They've invented their own preachers and called them relevant, and their own gospel completely devoid of repentance, and their own standards and called them grace and liberty. How are we to define accurately how a biblical pastor is supposed to function? On one hand, the answer is obvious. It's right in the question. Biblical pastor, Bible, the whole Bible, preach the whole counsel of God. He's Concern with Genesis through Revelation, the Old Testament foundation, the New Testament built on that foundation, and all of it matters. But every section of Scripture has its own emphasis and purpose. Where do you go to find out where a pastor is going to learn and what he's going to model his ministry based on? Where do the Scriptures deal with that specifically? It's not the book of Judges. Believe it or not, there's people that pull that out. It's not Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, taken out of context. If you know what that is, you know what I mean. No, there are three New Testament books that are given specifically as a blueprint for how a pastor is to conduct himself before the Lord in the church. That, of course, is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, or the pastoral epistles now let me draw your attention to the text that we began with really these are the theme verses of the book of first timothy and they tell us that right in the passage but going beyond that you could very easily say that verse 15 is the theme verse for all three of the pastoral epistles because with a slightly different emphasis they're all talking about that same thing paul says these things he's talking about the whole letter Write I unto thee, Timothy, hoping to come shortly. And then he says, but if I tarry long, just in case I'm detained longer than I think. So a divine delay there gives us, as used by the Lord providentially, to give us these books of the Bible. I'm thankful for that. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Paul was trying to get to them, and finally he wrote a letter because he couldn't get there. And what do we get? We get the epistle to the Romans fantastic. Now, I want to expound verse 15, just working backwards as we build on this for a minute. The Almighty God has given a particular institution. I don't love the word institution. Organism, thing, group. I mean, you get what I'm saying. The Lord God has given something that is the pillar and ground of the truth in this age until the rapture. He says that whatever that is, is the pillar. That means it displays and proclaims the truth of God. And it is the ground it supports and defends the truth of God. And notice he doesn't say it's one of, but it is the pillar and ground of the truth. There's only one. Now, what is God given to be that pillar and ground of the truth? He says it in the verse. The house of God, which is the church of the living God. The implications of that statement backed up by more scripture are massive. We are in the culture with a better is better conglomeration, majority. That is not what scriptures teach. Names are not the pillar and ground of the truth. Calls and scenarios are not the pillar and ground of the truth. Boards are not the pillar and ground of the truth. Anti-church fellowships, parachurch organizations, radio trees, the family is not the pillar and ground of truth. I'm a big fan of strong families. But without strong churches, I will not be strong families very long. It's not the homeschool movement. It's not a hundred million dollar life-size rep of the art sitting up in the prairie. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't go see that, but this is what I'm saying. Some of the rest, that's going to be the. No, it's not. The pillar of the truth is not life size boats in Kentucky, it's the church. Now, what's the church? Well, it's not this universal mystical thing, the church is not a building. Everybody says, well, I know that. Do you really, do you act like that? Do you have a face you put on when you come into this building? A uniform, a mask? And you're ungodly at work and you're a carnal monster at home? If that's you, you need to repent of your hypocrisy you are part of the church everywhere you go if you are biblically part of a church. The church is local, visible, organized, deliberate, called out, assembly of saved, baptized believers, collected under the direction and authority of God, called and ordained pastors for the work of carrying out the Great Commission. That's what a church is. That is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, We've got to move quickly. These three books of Scripture are given to a particular set of individuals to know how to conduct themselves in that church of the living God. Who are they? Well, directly, it's Timothy and Titus. But extension from that is pastors. I wonder, when you look at verse 14 and 15, have you ever stopped out about the importance of those words, thee and thou, in those verses? Here's why that's important. In the King James Bible, you, ye, and yours are plural. Thee, thou, thy, and thine are singular. And what you find as you go through the pastoral epistles, almost without exception, every single pronoun is singular. Now, don't miss this. This is huge. Because those three letters are not written to churches in general to try to sort this out on their own those three epistles are written directly to pastors about how they are to function and what they are to implement in the local assembly with Jesus Christ as their coming judge. So it's accurate to say, unless you're a pastor called to be one, the pastoral epistles are written for you, but not directly to you. You understand what I'm saying? Here's what they are for for you. They're for you to know what the Bible says about these things and to support your pastor as he engages in the very difficult work of insisting that the complete will of God is carried out in this church. Now, we're going to take an abbreviated survey of these three epistles, and we're going to try to quickly touch on a number of ways. We can't even come close to covering everything. But I'm going to tell you this also up front. I'm going to hit on many of the most difficult areas on purpose. Because if somebody's thinking is unscriptural somewhere along the line, these are the sections of these epistles that are most likely to bring that out and show it. All right, how is a pastor to conduct himself in the house of God as given in the Scriptures? Now you're in 1 Timothy. Just go to the end for a minute. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13. Okay, Paul writing to Timothy, and again, by extension, Paul writing directly to pastors. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13. I give thee, pastors, charge. That's a solemn command. In the sight of God, who quickeneth all things. Okay, so before God the Father, who gives life to everything, and before Christ Jesus. A solemn command. Before God the Father, before Christ Jesus, what is that charge? Verse 14, that keep this commandment that's talking about this whole book. And by the way, the word keep, it's not like we use the word. It's more of a military term. It's multi-faceted. Here's what keep means here. It's to observe it, to do it, to implement it, to defend it, and to pass it down intact to the next generation. Keeping these things means doing them and defending them and passing them down exactly as as they were given. Timothy is told, and pastors by extension, to keep this commandment, this book, without spot. That's completely. Unrebukable, that's consistently. For how long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's continually. Until it's not popular. Until the day when you do these things and you're not a megachurch. Until the day when your head is on a chopping block. No. Until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your pastor is commanded with a solemn charge before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to teach, preach, implement, and defend the things written right here and to do so completely, consistently, and continually until Christ comes back. By the way, this is not just a behind-the-pulpit ministry. I don't know where people got that idea, but it's not from the Bible. Oh, preacher, you just stay up behind that pulpit and stay out of my life, baloney. You find me any Bible preacher who did that. Old Testament prophet, or the Lord Jesus Christ, or the apostles, or Timothy, or Titus. No. Spoke these things. They lived these things. They insisted on these things. All right, first of all, go back to chapter 1. Again, we're going to touch these quickly. Chapter 1, verse 3. Paul tells Timothy... As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Pastors are responsible for who teaches and influences within the church and for what they teach. And he must command some to stop. Now, can you imagine the scenario at Ephesus? Paul leaves, he leaves Timothy there. We know Timothy was not very old. I'm guessing around 30. I think there's good reason for that, but I don't know for sure. So the young man, Timothy, who's not an apostle, he's a pastor. He's left behind. And Paul says, one of the first things I want you to do is deal with those influencing and teaching in the church and tell them to stop. Well, how's that for winning friends and influencing people? Now, think about this. In verse 4, it shows us their teaching produced problems instead of growth. Verse 7, he says that they're understanding neither what they say nor where they affirm. In other words, they have no idea what they're even talking about. Now, if you asked these guys that were doing this, are you producing confusion and is it true you don't know what you're talking about? They'd say, oh, no. But it wasn't their decision. It's the pastor's decision. He is the one given the charge before God to stop wrongful teaching and influence in the church. Now notice the standard. It's no other doctrine. Charge them that they teach no other doctrine. It's not a list of five or seven or ten fundamentals that men made up. This whole conglomeration mentality has really done tremendous destruction where as long as the church believes these four things, we can work together. The Bible standard is no other doctrine. Baptism is not negotiable. The terms of the gospel are not negotiable. Biblical repentance is absolutely not negotiable. If you do not repent, you are going to hell. It's the great omission in modern evangelism. Just pray this little prayer. No change of life, no forsaking the world, no turning from sin. church is filled with professing Christians who live like devils. No fellowship with that. And a whole list of other things. But the standard is no other doctrine. Now let's say you're teaching a class here or teaching via conversation or something. It is absolutely appropriate for the pastor to come to you and say, Stop teaching that. He's supposed to do that. And if you get upset when that happens, you don't have biblical expectations. Chapter 1, verse 20, we won't look at it very much, but he names Hymenaeus and Alexander. He names them by name. Pastors are going to exercise discipline in the church, and they are going to specifically and publicly name some names when it's necessary that hit very close to home. I think sometimes people read Hymenaeus and Alexander and they picture two gurus on TBN way out there somewhere. Listen, these were people from in this church that these church people knew, that had taught there and influenced there. And Paul puts the Mr. Yuck sticker on them. Any of you remember those from when you were a kid? and says don't them if your pastor loves you enough to look at influences in your life and preachers you're listening to and books you're reading and say you need to stay away from that he's doing what god called him to do he's exercising biblical oversight can i can i tell you a little news flash from behind the pulpit that's not fun No pastor I know of lays awake at night giggling with glee that he gets to confront somebody's false teacher they're listening to. But if he's going to obey Christ, it's going to happen. All right, chapter 2. This is often a massive battleground. There's no good reason for it to be. Follow the flow of thought. Just, we're just getting into the meat of this letter. It's before the qualifications for pastors and deacons, and he's walking Timothy through the things that he's commanded as a pastor to proclaim, observe, and defend. Verse 1, different facets of prayer. Well, amen, everybody says. Verse 2, specifically prayer for government leaders. Verse 4, the fact that God wants all men to be saved. Verse 5 and 6, Christ is the only mediator and ransom. Verse 8, should be filled with prayer. They should be holy. They should not be controlled by anger and unbelief. By the way, anger and unbelief go together. Show me a person with uncontrolled anger. I'll show you a person who doesn't believe God is who he says he is. There's a reason those are paired up. So he says to the men, you notice that? This is the first time, by the way. Now pay attention to this. First time in the pastoral epistles that men and women are specifically addressed by their respective gender. All right, men, four things. Prayer, holiness of life, without wrath and doubting. Verse 9 picks up with the women. And like men are also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Now think about this. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a pastor is commanded to address men and women about these exact things without spot. And do you notice the first four things he addresses the women about? Clothing, attitude, hair, Jewelry. Not my word. Does that amaze you? It amazed me a little bit thinking about that. Now, what's he saying? Are those the most important things? Obviously not. But ladies, now listen to me and don't get miffed about this. Part of what that's saying from the pastoral level, those four things are very likely to become big issues with you. Now, here's what you can do instead of getting upset. You can determine in your heart that those things are not going to become big issues with you. They're not going to stop you from growth. They're not going to stop you from service. They're not going to stop you from listening to your pastor. Modesty there. Let me just say something real quick. It's a miraculous word. You know what I mean by that? Every other word in the Bible, people want explained and and, and expounded and applied, except that one. Now think about this. There's only a few ways you can deal with a word like that. You can stick with a dictionary definition, it's too vague. You can stick with, we'll just stay behind culture. We'll just put on more clothes than them. That's always changing for the worse. How about individual opinion? this is modest to me and this is modest to you. Do you know what the biblical pattern is? The whole scriptures are considered and applied. This is written to pastors. Somebody has to draw a line somewhere. And that somebody is not you. It's him. That's how this is supposed to work. Look, there's areas of leadership. It's true as parents and all kinds of different forums. There's an umbrella we stay under, but somebody has to draw the line somewhere. I've been amazed. I've preached in a lot of places and seen people get upset about this. And someone says, Well, I don't. Why does he have to draw a line there? Do you want somebody up here in a bikini? No, I'd never allow that. How come? Well, that's not modest. Says who? I don't think it is. Guess what? You're not the standard. And by the way, if standards are so bad, you just gave a standard. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is given to pastors to sort these things out and apply them. Pastors are also commanded, by the way, if that wasn't fun enough for preachers, they're commanded to teach on women's roles, that they are not to be in charge in the home, in society, in the church. And they're to teach the fact that they are more susceptible to error. That's all in this text. I've preached for years. Let me tell you something. I don't like talking about that. But do you support your pastor when he deals with the scriptures like that properly and draw some lines? All right, chapter three, qualifications for pastors and deacons. I'm not going to go through them all, but I'm just going to point out a few things. See those chapter three? They're not an impossible ideal. In other words, they're not there just some pie in the sky. Men keep these. They're also not kept perfectly, but they're character qualifications. But who are they given to? They're given to pastors. Because pastors are to recognize and appoint pastors and deacons. Now, the church is going to recognize that also. But you see a consistent biblical pattern. Pastors appoint these. Chapter 4. And we're going to have to move, and we're going to try. Chapter 4, look at verse 1. The Spirit speaks rustily, in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. And then you see verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister. Pastors are to preach often on the subject of apostasy. Apostasy is not the world getting worse. Apostasy is professing Christians as the end of the age draws near, getting more and more ungodly while they profess to know God. If you line up all the doctrines taught in the New Testament, do you know that one is almost at the top with how prolific it is? It is a massive topic. And pastors are to preach on that often so that God's people are aware and not shocked by what's going on around them. Has anybody noticed that what passes for church and preaching and Christianity in a lot of places today, 40 years ago, would have made people pass out in shock? It's incredible. Pastors are to preach on that. Chapter 5, verse 11, that's tough. We can just, just just scan your eyes there. Chapter 11, but the young widows refuse. Chapter 5, verse 11, he's talking about support for young widows. You talk about emotionally charged. Few things tug at the heartstrings like that. But Paul is told there in that passage, they, the churches would support widows over a certain age with certain qualifications. They would take them on and basically give them a salaried support. And Paul was telling Timothy with widows that are younger, don't do that. Now, I got news for you. That would not be popular with many. Many would be saying, but pastor, can't we make an exception? But pastor, do we we have to follow that? And he would turn here and say, I didn't write this. This charge is given unto me before Christ." I don't change it. I implement it. I obey it. I defend it. Chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Or I'm sorry, chapter 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, that's talking about financial support of Pastors. Who's this written to? Pastors. Who is commanded by the Lord to teach plainly on the subject of pastoral support? Pastors. And if pastors don't do that, who will? It's weird. Sometimes money things get very awkward. And the pastor's supposed to tiptoe around this somehow and act like money is... Some unspiritual thing. Money's a tool, it's a thing. And Paul is telling Timothy, you need to teach on this. You need to instruct the church on this. Don't shy back from it. Chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. What is the pastor? How's he supposed to treat rich church members? Many would say, well, tiptoe around him. You know, we need their money. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 17. Charge them. That means command. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. You're to command the rich people in the church, don't be puffed up and arrogant. You're to command the rich people in the church, don't trust in your money. Pastors are to command the rich people in the church, be ready to give and be rich in good works. Is that popular? No, it is not. A couple things in 2 Timothy. We're going to have to pick and choose. Let me just pick a few. 115, a godly pastor will often stand alone and many will forsake him. Chapter 2, verse 9, a godly pastor will suffer trouble because of his militant stance. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, a biblical pastor must discern dishonorable vessels in the church, outside the church, and separate from them to be a useful vessel. Do you know that you must exercise under the direction of a pastor separation from error and falsehood and compromise in order to really be useful to God? And pastors are to do that. They're commanded to do that. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 of 2 Timothy, deals with apostasy again. Again, Chapter those five verses are not describing the world. They're describing professing Christianity. They love their own self, and they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So they talk about Jesus. They talk about their religion, but there's no supernatural change attached to it. And again, he's supposed to emphasize that, and he's supposed to turn away from it. Look at verse 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women. False teachers target women. There's other passages that talk about that, but they do that. Ladies, if your pastor loves you enough to address this, thank God for that. Thank God for that. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, do you support your pastor in a biblical philosophy? He says the time is going to come, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come they. Again, we're talking about professing Christianity. They will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. After their own lusts, they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itchy ears. They're going to clamor for preachers and churches and everything else to tell them exactly what they want to hear. Now, what is a biblical pastor to do When all of professing Christendom is telling him to please the crowd. Again, we have a solemn charge. Verse 1, I'm charging you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, when people like it and when they don't, when it's popular, when it's not, when you see results and when you don't, when it feels good and when it doesn't. Preach the word. And what do you give? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. How do those make you feel? Exhort's encouraging. I would say that's positive. Reproof is correction. Rebuke is a firm, blunt, direct correction. You're wrong and you need to repent. And pastors are told to do that. Chapters 10 and 14, Demas and Alexander name. Now, we don't have time to go through much of Titus. Let me just pick out a couple of things. Chapter 1, Titus is told there are certain teachers, again, whose mouths must be stopped. There were men teaching in the churches of Crete that Titus was specifically sent there to tell them, stop teaching in this church. Stop influencing people or you're out of here because they were spreading poison. Pastor is to emphasize true versus false grace, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And what does it do? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. A couple more, we'll move out of this. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15 of Titus. These things, he's talking about roles of men and women in the church and many other things. He said these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. He says, let no man despise thee. There's similar language in 1 Timothy. He tells Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. There he's saying, don't live in such a way that people look down on your age. Here he's saying, Pastor Titus, don't put up with people in the church despising the pastoral office. This is a command from the Lord through the Holy Spirit that your pastor is going to be accountable for in the day of Christ. A pastor is to deal with heretics properly. Titus chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and then we'll move on from this. Notice the passage, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. Again, this is written to pastors. This is not the same as Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is an interpersonal conflict, sin issue in the church. Remember, it escalates and it's brought before the church. This is something given to pastors. Let me paint the scenario. Somebody comes into the church. Let's say they're visiting for a while. The pastor has concern. They're a heretic. That means they're divisive. Their doctrine is off. Their practice is off. They have a divisive spirit. They're causing problems. And the pastor is told, you admonish them, you correct them, you deal with them, you see if they're teachable. Okay, you give them the first admonition. Things go on. You give them a second admonition. Stop doing that. It happens again. The pastor is to show them the door. That's what this is saying. And look what it says. Knowing that he that is such is subverted, that means warped, and sinneth being condemned of himself. Pastors are to be patient and long-suffering to teach those that are teachable. But listen, it is not part of their calling to endlessly put up with troublemakers in the assembly who refuse to be taught sound doctrine. And he's saying, when that happens, here's what you know, pastor. That person is warped. They won't listen. And you need to get the leaven out of the church before it spreads. Friends, this is sober stuff. There's a lot more I wanted to cover. But just what I've said is absolutely not easy. Turn with me to Hebrews 13. You know this passage, many of you. Let me just close with this. As you're turning there, I want to remind you, many of you know this passage, but do you remember when the Lord Jesus, he turned to the crowd and he was asking them questions about John the Baptist and said, what went ye out in the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? I mean, what did you expect Some spineless coward who is blown everywhere by public opinion? And then he asked him again, What went ye out in the wilderness for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? That word for soft raiment means effeminate. Let Let me put it in modern vernacular. Did you guys expect God Almighty to send a preacher that was a spineless pansy? God doesn't call men like that to preach. He wants men with spine and men with backbone and men that fear the day of Christ much more than they fear man's opinion. Well, let me ask this question. Will you respond to pastoral leadership? And you, I invite you to go through these epistles with a fine-tooth comb and make much more application than I just have. Will you follow biblical pastoral leadership according to to the scriptures, or according to something else. I know most of you are familiar with it. Your pastor was just there this last week, and I was intending to to be here long before I even came on this trip. But it's interesting. We're going to close out here. We'll be done in a minute. Hebrews is written to scattered Jews, contains a whole lot of weighty topics, but chapter 13, he's kind of drawing the net. He's, he's, He's giving a whole list of Just practical admonitions. Deal with this. Do this. Remember this. And three times in that closing chapter, the writer of the Hebrews mentions them that have the rule over you. Without going into a lengthy discussion, there's no question he's talking about church leadership. And that means exactly what it says. Those who God has put in a position of authority over you. And he assumes it's the case and mentions it three times. And all three times he gives a verb response, an imperative command, this is what church members are to do. This is how they're to respond to those that have the rule over them. Verse 3, remember them. Be mindful of them. Keep in mind that a loving God has placed them over you for your good. Don't live like they don't exist. Don't walk out the door after church meetings and just forget what they've said. Remember them. Drop down to the, to the end of the chapter, verse 24, and then we'll hit the one in the middle. Verse 24, salute them. He's not, he's not talking about this. And it's more than just say hi. According to Thayer, here's, listen to this. Here's what that word salute means. Draw to oneself and receive joyfully. It's having a joyful attitude of reception towards those that have the rule over you. And one of the first signs of trouble in a Christian's life is when that's not the case. You know the hardest parts of pastoring? You can't listen for people and you can't believe for people. And there are times with tears where you tell somebody, you are heading for disaster. And they do it anyway. Command number three. By the way, let me just say this. Somebody says, but the pastor offended me. Maybe he did you know something? There's no way you're going to be a member here for a long time and have Him never offend you. Now, I mean, think about this. By the way, if you had to speak four hours every week and have everybody look at your words in a microscope, how would you do? That's why James says, in many things we offend all. I'm not justifying sin, but I'm saying, understand it's not easy to get up here and do this. What if He offends you? Deal with it biblically. How's that? Respectfully. Respectfully and personally. That's how you deal with it. I know your pastor. You hear something in a message and say, yeah, I don't think that didn't sound right. Pastor, that didn't sound right. Can you explain that to me? He's either going to explain it to you or he's going to repent. Deal with it biblically. Look at verse 17, last command. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Obey, submit. That's action. That's attitude. Do what they say under their authority and do it with a good attitude before the Lord. Now, let me just give a helpful illustration to close this. I've seven children. My oldest is almost 21, my youngest is 4. We've been at this a little while. We're still in the trenches. If you ask any of my children, they'll probably they could probably tell you in your sleep, what is biblical obedience? It's doing exactly what dad says right when he says it with a good attitude. That's that's obedience. That's what we teach our children. I hope you teach your children that. Anything less than that is not obedience. But let me just illustrate this ridiculously that really hits close to home to what a lot of pastors deal with. Let's say, I'll pick pick my 13-year-old here. It's probably a good age for this illustration. Let's say I'm watching him and I notice he's getting more tired because he's going to bed too late. And I say, now, son, what what time have you been going to bed? 11 o'clock. Okay, it would be best for you to go to bed at 9 o'clock until I say differently, I want you to bed at 9. And do I have the right to do that as as a father, as, as the head of the home? Sure, I do. Now, let's say the conversation goes something like this. He says, you know, Dad, I... I feel like I'm fine with what I'm doing. I think it's working. Go to bed at nine. You know, I don't understand why you tell me to do this so I can't do it. I need to completely understand first. Go to bed at nine. You know, Dad, I prayed about it. And the Lord told me to go to bed at 11. So I've got it. You know, Acts 4 and 5 tell me to obey God rather than men. Friends, I, I have had church members tell me that before they destroy their life. I, the Lord, told me I better obey God rather than men. I say, all right, son, go to. By this time, I would have dealt with it, but but I'm going to continue. He says, uh, you know, Dad, uh, you want me to go to bed eleven, but but that's not my personal conviction. And you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And so I really can't do it until it's, you know, my personal conviction. Go to bed at nine. Dad, now show me an exact chapter and verse in the Bible, or I don't have to listen. I I really, I can't follow a legalist. I feel the legalism here. Show me a verse that says, thou shalt go to bed at nine, because I'm not seeing it. This is ridiculous, but do you get what I'm saying? You know... My siblings and I think 11 is better, and, and that's there's really more of us than there is you. I mean, who put you in charge? Billy's dad, he lets him go to bed at 11, and he's a Christian, so that's what you should do. I mean, how do I know you're right? Dexter's dad, now he's abusive. He makes his son go to bed at 9, so I think you're abusive, You know, I think I'm going to shop around and look for other homes to live in. It's pretty restrictive around here. I mean, it's not fair. My opinion's not considered more heavily. I'm going to go to a family that appreciates me. You know, Dad, I'll go to bed at 9, but in my heart, I'm going to be up to 11. Mm -hmm. Dad, you aren't perfect. Remember that time you sinned and had to ask forgiveness? I mean why should I have to follow an imperfect leader? Let's say he goes to bed and you hear in the door, He's every night he's griping to his siblings. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Let's say you instruct him. You say, son, you know, you remember what Ephesians 6.1 says? Children, that's you, in case you forgot. Parents, that's me. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And he says, uh, you know, dad, that's... Uh, it's kind of self-serving for you to say that. You should only let visiting fathers say that. You know, the Bible says children are inheritors of the Lord. I think you're being a Lord over God's heritage. You need to let the Lord teach me that. I feel like you're trying to play Holy Spirit. Now, I hope as a parent you would recognize the problem with all of what was just said. What is it? It's one word. It's rebellion. It's I will not submit to God-ordained authority. Every one of those things I just read, people use all the time to ignore pastors. And do you know what it is? Rebellion. That's the Bible word. Your pastor is not infallible. I'm not saying don't ask questions. I'm not saying don't follow him off a cliff. But I am saying this under the umbrella of authority God's given him, he has the responsibility to draw a line somewhere. Who's the worship leader in the church? It's the pastor. He may have other people assist, but the pastor is the one accountable. So how do you respond? Your pastor says, stop teaching that or teach this differently. Don't do that. He draws lines on standards. This is what we're going to do before the Lord. I'm convinced as the pastor, this is where we need to be. How do you respond to that? Do you respond like the, the imaginary teenage discussion I just mentioned? You are in fantastic danger if you do. God is so good to us. And one of the ways he's good to us is to give us a pillar and ground of the church under the direction of men that he places for our spiritual good to watch over us. I'm going to close with this and then I'm going to pray. I hope everybody here will go through the pastoral epistles as those written to pastors and get familiar with them. And I hope you'll read those and say, wow, this is what my pastor is supposed to do before the Lord. I'm gonna support him in that. And if there's areas where you realize I'm out of line The continuation of that verse we ended with, why does it say that pastors are to be obeyed? Here's why. Because they watch for your soul as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. If you have areas to deal with in that respect, deal with them. Call them what they are before the Lord and repent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, I pray that all of us, me included, would have ears to hear. Lord, you know how many things in this you've corrected me on in the last year. And I thank you that you encourage as well as rebuke. I pray that you'd strengthen this church to have a scriptural unity, to press on and to grow in holiness and wisdom and fruitfulness. And I pray you'd use them to make the name of Christ great in this community. In Jesus' name.